on InCheck with FinTech, we have Mr. Stephen Ashutino. Stephen is a partner at Reed Smith. He's in the global FinTech practice now. Stephen, thanks for being on the show. Great to be here, Lewis. Thank you for having me. We were just chatting in the preamble there about how there are more lawyers, attorneys, legal professionals specializing in the world of payments and fintech. And I was very keen to have one on our podcast. We've done, I think, 30 or 40 episodes now and never had the pleasure of, of talking to a lawyer. So it's, it's great to get you on and find out a bit about what it is you actually do in the industry. Um, Stephen, please, uh, please kindly uh, introduce yourself. Thank you again, Lewis. Um, again, I'm Stephen Ashutino, a partner at Reed Smith. Uh, for those of you who don't know our firm, we have about 1,700 lawyers in 30 offices across the US, Europe, Asia, the Middle East. The firm is over 100 years old. Uh, we do pretty much everything, uh, but we focus on five key industry sectors, financial services, life sciences, entertainment, transportation, and energy. Uh, naturally, my focus is on fintech. Um, I essentially lead our payments technology practice, uh, and I did that before joining Reed Smith at two other global law firms. That's right. Uh, those were Foley and Lardner and Loeb and Loeb? Correct. And when did you know you were specializing in the direction of payments and, and fintech? I mean, I suppose it would have been just as easy to move into a traditional finance path. When, when did you start specializing in, in this, what was until recently, a rather small and, and peculiar kind of pocket of, of financial services? Uh, it's a great question. Unfortunately, it has a long answer, so I'll give you the short version. Um, I actually started my career as a commercial trial lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, very much a, a courtroom attorney, um, and had no nexus whatsoever to finance or payments. Um, and then uh, the story is that I wound up coming across a company um, that was a small client of my firm at the time, and uh, I wound up becoming general counsel to that company. And that company was a payment processor based in the U.S., uh, with about 80,000 merchants. And I learned payments right in the middle of the credit card payment ecosystem. That was back in 2008. Um, what I came to learn was, even though I had joined from another global law firm, um, and I was a loyal ex-partner trying to you know, refer work to my prior firm, that my prior firm didn't have any capabilities in this area, even though it had 800 lawyers. Mm. Um, there were very few lawyers in the U.S. that knew anything about payments, and I wound up using a, using a boutique. Uh, when I left that general counsel role and returned to private practice, it wasn't lost on me that there were very few lawyers out there that had been partners in Amlaw 100 firms and also general counsel to payments companies. So uh, I, then I began the process of becoming a, a payments technology lawyer, essentially. Wonderful. So you saw a, a hole in the market, really, after leaving your role as a general counsel back in 2008-2010. You saw this was a, a burgeoning part of the market and there wasn't a um, high concentration of other you know, specialised um, legal practices. And you thought there, this is a great opportunity to, to build a nicer client portfolio. 
I, I did. I didn't. I wasn't sure about it at first. Um, I sort of test marketed it by calling some of the companies that we worked with in my general counsel role and saying, "Hey, if I were to hang a shingle, so to speak, would you be interested in working with me?" And I received a very positive response. So uh, I moved forward to, to execute that plan. Um, at the time, payments technology. Well, that term didn't even exist. It was credit card processing, right. um, and it wasn't a particularly sexy space. Um, and throughout my career, I've I've evolved with payments technology. Um, so back then, it was just credit cards, debit cards, and wire transfers. That's about as high tech as you got. Um, there were no mobile payment apps, peer to peer applications, um, connected devices, cryptocurrencies, or any of the things that we're involved with today. So it's fair to say you were there at the beginning, and you must be happy with the way the ecosystem, the various technology stacks have diversified in the last few years. FinTech is really one of the markets to be in right now. I think it is. I'm a little bit biased. But yes, it's been really interesting to watch what was a relatively dull, unknown area really evolve, um, not just with companies that are in the payment space, which were traditionally my, my clients and contacts back at the very beginning, um, but to see large technology companies across the globe enter payments. Um, and even more recently, other types of companies that, that aren't even you know technology companies or payments companies, companies that are household names with consumer products, manufacturing, retail, um, and the like, uh, developing and implementing their own payments technology. If you could help our audience um, understand a bit more in practical terms, what does it look like to, to take on a case? You have to be careful not to mention any customers' names, past or present, of course, but if you could help us um, walk us through, do you call on a company who you think would typically have legal problems that you know you could be an expert solution for, or how do you go about getting business, and, and what does it look like getting started working on a case for such a, such a company as a credit card processor or a more um, recent modern fintech? Sure, great question, Lewis. Um, there's a number of different ways that, that someone like me goes about getting clients. Um, typically, we don't, you know, and I'm going to speak generally about sort of what I do, but, but also about what fintech lawyers, I believe, in general do. Um, I, I don't typically call clients to see if they need my help. Um, I do, I rely heavily on referrals and I do broader uh, marketing so that, you know, people are aware that I exist. Um, sort of marketing and branding efforts, various business development activities like speaking on webinars, um, speaking in podcasts, um, attending conferences and events, um, producing thought leadership, things like that to, to raise awareness. Um, and typically someone calls me, either they heard directly about me through one of those efforts or um, another source of uh, business for me oftentimes winds up being referrals because there are only so many payments technology lawyers out there or even fintech lawyers in general um, that lawyers at other firms uh, will reach out to me to refer their clients um, so there's just really there's really a, a, a wide sort of a pool out there um, of sources of referral if you will um, in terms of you know what a ca case look the lifestyle of a, of a case mm. that i think you were asking about um, there's a wide variety of matters that I can get involved in. So 
on one end, I work often with startups. There's a ton happening in the startup world in paytech. Um, last time I checked on the, the angel list, there were about 2,000 companies that self-identified as payments companies. Yep. And when you work with a startup, um, you, you really do everything for them from setting up the company uh, and getting employees hired and employment agreements and IP uh, registered, et cetera, to, of course, my, my piece is more helping them to develop a product, uh, helping them to understand what regulatory landscape there may be for that product and helping to shape that product in ways that um, may, if possible, minimize the regulatory landscape, but make sure that that product is commercially viable. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if you will, and there's a lot of other use cases, but um, are companies that are established in other parts of the world. They've already developed successful payments technology products, but perhaps those products do not currently exist in the US uh, or in other markets that read submit services, but I'm gonna focus on the US because that's where I focus my practice. Mm -hmm. uh, in those types of projects, um, I typically first start by trying to understand what the product even is, looking at things like the flow of money, the commercial agreements in place uh, and other factors. And sort of job one is to help these companies understand the US regulatory landscape to see what types of laws, federal and state laws would apply to them and how that may impact their business. Uh, and again, where possible, we seek to minimize their regulatory footprint, if you will. Um, and if, that, if that's not possible, we help them to get the necessary uh, registrations and licenses. Berlin, we're here and ready for your hiring needs. After some short time considering it, we've decided to set up business in Germany meaning we can be closer to clients and allow room for new business. We're set up and ready to help find your ideal candidates, help build teams, and offer up media services. People create networks. Okay, wonderful. Great, great overview there. Is it fair to say you're busier with startups these days than you are more established companies? It really runs the full gamut. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Our firm, despite our size, is very startup friendly. We have a very entrepreneurial fintech practice. So we do work a lot with startups, which is great. A lot of firms of our size uh, are not seen as being startup friendly, and we are. Mm -hmm. um, but we, you know, our, the clients range from the, the newest startups to the largest financial institutions, card networks, social media platforms, and the like. Okay, wonderful. Just jumping around a little bit, back to your last question about working with non-US fintechs that are looking to open up in the US. Um, of course, it depends on what sort of technology they're looking to offer consumers. But what are some of the key things you help incoming customers uh, look out for are there you know, some key regulatory hurdles every um, fintech or other company needs to be aware of when trying to enter the US? Do you have a preferred jurisdiction you'd like to help them get set up in? Are there certain hires they have to make uh, on the ground before they can get started? Just walk us through some of the typical contours um, that you help uh, an, in an incoming client um, you know, meander through. Sure, I'll, I'll give it a try, Lewis, at a very high level to start. Um, so one of the biggest challenges is um, a lot of our clients 
uh, that are successful in other parts of the world are used to having a strong central regulator in their home jurisdiction, and perhaps in other jurisdictions where they're operating and are already successful in. In the US, it's very different. While there certainly are federal regulators th that can impose jurisdiction upon companies that, that offer payment services in the US, uh, what clients are often you know, very surprised to find out is that the 50 US states also are potential regulators. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that leads to a lot of very interesting discussions, uh, especially with uh, lawyers in other parts of the world. Um, and that, that complicates things because certain types of companies wouldn't be heavily regulated on a federal level, might just have to do something like register and get a license, but would be more heavily regulated with the 49 or so jurisdictions in the US that require licenses for companies that are engaged in money transmission as it's, as it's defined by those regulators. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that interplay uh, becomes challenging and companies quickly realize that that may be um, time consuming and expensive to get all of those licenses. Uh, and that leads to discussions about, can they possibly change their products to not require those licenses yeah. Uh, on the one hand, and if that, that isn't really possible or feasible or desirable for some reason, uh, discussion about how, how long that'll take, et cetera. To get um, licensed as what's referred to as a money services business, there are numerous requirements and they vary by state. But, but to your question of what is what's involved at a very high level, typically a US presence will be involved. Yes. a meaningful one with US bank accounts and with individuals responsible for those bank accounts. The companies and the responsible individuals are required to undergo background checks, provide personal and company financial information uh, and other things that, that, are, that are intrusive. Um, and um, those, those, those are discussions that are, that are not always the easiest with the clients to help them to understand, mm -hmm. um, but they will need a presence. They might need to hire somebody to be um, that designee, if you will, and undertake other steps that maybe weren't part of their original plan. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the fintech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team, get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Okay, and, and given that there are sometimes stringent requirements on a state-by-state -state basis, are you allowed to prefer one state over another? Can you, can you say so if, if you are? Are some states easier to set up in for fintechs than others? Well, I'll take that in two parts. So in terms of setting up a presence in the US, um, there are advantages to certain states um, there's too many pros and cons to get into here. The most typical one is, is, is Delaware, simply because Delaware has a very established body of corporate laws, is generally corporation friendly. 
Um, so that's sort of the, the, the default choice. But there are reasons to do things in other states, and we'd have to look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. That's in terms of having a corporate presence um, and being, quote unquote, organized in a given state. Once we go past that and we get into product operations, the laws of every state where that company does business will apply. Now, does business is defined very broadly. And essentially, most states define that as being any state in which you interact with one of their residents. So if a company is launching a you know, national borderless payments platform, that's going to be every state. Mm -hmm. um, and that's typically what we're, what we're dealing with when, you know, talking to clients and giving them advice. And would that mean if they were launching a, a national borderless payments platform, they would need payments, licenses or, or the equivalent in, in, in all 50 states? They would if they are to be deemed a money services business. Um, there are exceptions to that. And the, the biggest exception, and perhaps the most significant one, is if they were to essentially register as a bank, obtain a bank charter. Banks um, that receive licenses from the OCC or FDIC do not have to obtain separate licenses from states. Federal law applies to banks and it preempts state law. Okay, so if it's appropriate, that would be a much easier or quicker route to go down. Again, if it's, if it's relevant and appropriate, it could be. I mean, to become a bank is not a small feat either. Um, and the federal government has a lot of requirements uh, on that front, um, including uh, deposits, reserves, all types of compliance programs, personnel. Um, it's not necessarily easy to get a bank charter, but you do have the advantage of one-stop shopping, so to speak, rather than having to go through all of these state regulators. Indeed. So some things there for foreign fintechs to look out for if and when they're ready to uh, conquer the USA. Uh, jumping around a little bit, are you very busy in the world of M&A at the moment? Um, we are seeing a lot of M&A activity. Our firm is extremely busy in the M&A space. Um, in terms of me personally, I'm not currently involved in any significant M&A matters, but I only joined Reed Smith two months ago and I expect that's soon going to change. Yeah, it, it, I think inevitably. Um, in some of your previous practices, I imagine you've been very involved in, in M&A procedures? I am. I'm not an M&A lawyer per se, uh, but if the acquisition involves a company in the payment space, I'm typically asked to become involved on the regulatory side, uh, particularly with regard to uh, due diligence, contract review, uh, and broader regulatory advice. It has been a, a real bonanza in m and in, in fintech over the last three years, and it doesn't seem to be slowing up much. So I imagine Reed Smith will give you some, some, some great new work in, in this area. Um, whether you're buying or selling your company, um, what are some of the key things to look out for when you're representing a client going into a major M&A situation? Um, well, if you're talking about a company in the payment space, um, one of the first things we need to look at is what type of licensing regime may apply uh, post-acquisition. Um, it is conceivable that the company that's being acquired has certain licenses in place, um, and those licenses would have to be assigned or assumed by the buyer. 
Um, and there's an analysis that has to be undertaken to see the likelihood of that occurring. Um, it's also possible that the company doesn't have uh, certain licenses or registrations that the buyer uh, and, and us as, as the buyer's counsel in this hypothetical may feel that they should have. Uh, and that creates certain regulatory risks um, and an analysis has to be undertaken as to what that risk might look like. Um, should licensing be part of this process um, and otherwise help the client to minimize um, regulatory entanglements post-closing? Is there, let me, let me fashion a, a question here. It must be quite difficult for the buy side to fully establish what the licensing regime is on the sell side. Have you ever seen a situation where a company has acquired a smaller company and the licensing regime is not what they thought it would be and there were some quite negative consequences for them? Does, does that happen or is there usually due diligence enough to avoid such, uh, such occurrences? Uh, I'm sure it has happened, but I have not been involved in any situations where that has happened. Um, all of the global law firms where I've worked have very rigorous due diligence processes and sophisticated M&A teams that can identify those types of risks and, you know, knock on wood, so far have. Yeah. Um, so none of our clients have been surprised, uh, and that would be a very negative surprise. Indeed. That um, makes me think back to early last year, this was mostly a, a European problem, but it had echoes around the world. Were you familiar with the, uh, the downfall of, uh, of Wirecard? I was not involved with it, but I am familiar with it, yes. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, did you, uh, in your previous practice, did you see that had a bit of a ripple effect throughout the industry? Were, were companies kind of um, you know, buttoning up their, their accounts following that? Or do you think that was just a, a freak occurrence in, in one place? No, I, I think it did um, raise some eyebrows across the industry, if you will. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I don't, certainly don't want to minimize the impact uh, that Wirecard has had on the industry, on uh, investors, companies, uh, even consumers. Um, but sometimes those types of negative situations uh, can have positive results as well. Uh, and here, I think it did. Yeah, indeed. Um, it was a real shakeup over here. Um, I think we're still dealing with some of the consequences, especially the German regulator. Not at a great, um, a great, uh, yeah, let's say a, a domino effect here and there, but I think the US is relatively um, cushioned from it. Um, jumping around a bit more, do you um, do you know about special purpose acquisition vehicles, the um, the so-called SPACs? Uh, I do. If you would have asked me three years ago, I would have said I've heard of it, uh, and that's about it. But there has been a tremendous amount of SPAC tech activity over the last two years, and I think COVID-19 has just made that activity skyrocket. So yeah. I'm, I'm seeing a ton of, of SPAC activity, including SPACs in the payment space. Indeed. Before we get specific to payments, can you just help our audience understand what a SPAC is? I may not be the best person to explain this, but um, a SPAC, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's essentially formed with the purpose of acquiring another company in the future. Um, and what we're seeing currently is 
SPACs that are created as public entities uh, and they then go by another company that's not public, thereby making the acquired company a public company. It's a different way essentially for a company to go public um, without the traditional IPO or initial public offering. Yeah, and I bring this up because there's, there's a major UK-Israeli um, payments company, a company called Payoneer, that I think is looking at going public using a SPAC. Are you, um, are you over that? Yes, I'm not involved with that, but I, I have seen that, yes. And they would not be the first payments company to do so. Is um, the use of SPACs or the involvement with them something Reed Smith is getting more, uh, more busy with? Heavily. Yes, um, we are uh, working on a ton of SPACs. The, the activity and interest level is tremendous. Wow. It's one of our fastest growing practices and it's already very busy. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, what did you make last week of uh, Elon Musk or uh, Tesla rather buying $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin? Um, it, I thought it was interesting, um, you know, uh, through, through the lens of a paytech lawyer, um, I, I encourage the broader adoption of cryptocurrencies in general. Um, and I'm sure we can have a whole separate podcast about that, that topic alone. Mm -hmm. um, so seeing a company like Tesla investing in Bitcoin on the one hand is great. On the other hand, I'm a bit confused by it. Uh, I know on the one hand, I know that Elon Musk, Elon Musk likes to, um, be on the forefront, uh, perhaps be a little bit controversial at, at sometimes. But one of the signature attributes, in my humble opinion, of Tesla is that th they make electric vehicles. And electric vehicles are desired in part because they help to minimize greenhouse gases, um, et cetera. Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in particular uh, is known to create, generate a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide. Um, and it seems environmentally inconsistent for a company like Tesla to invest in Bitcoin. Putting that aside, putting back my paytech lawyer hat on, um, I personally think it's great because it, it helps to further move Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general out of the fringe, if you will, out of being a speculative investment seen, as seen by some more into the mainstream. Yeah. And are you bullish on cryptocurrency generally? You think they um, give more benefits than they do risks over the long term? In general, I am. I, I was not a big fan of what occurred um, mostly in 2018 with the so-called initial coin offerings or ICOs and a lot of the sort of boom and bust that followed, um, the get-rich-quick schemes um, that were out there, um, unsophisticated players trying to capitalize on the crypto bubble, so to speak. Um, I, I thought that hurt the crypto effort, even though there was a lot of activity and interest in media coverage about it. Um, there are strong use cases for cryptocurrencies. Um, if you go back to my timeline, right, I entered the payments space in 2008. Bitcoin was essentially born in 2009. Mm -hmm. So I've watched it ever since and all the other cryptocurrencies that grew up around it. 
I think there, there are tremendous use cases for cryptocurrencies, but speculative investment is not high on my list of those use cases. No, so, I don't suppose you could um, take an opinion on behalf of a client as to whether they should reinvest some of the corporate profits in, in crypto the way Tesla has just done. Um, I, I don't think I'm really qualified to give any advice on <laughs> investing to clients, if you will. Yeah. Um, I have worked with a number of clients about um, developing their own cryptocurrencies okay. um, and using those either for financing the companies or certain vehicles, so to speak, or um, using that as part of a broader tokenized platform effort. So I'm always you know, happy to have those discussions and I encourage them. And I think there's a lot of great use cases out there for cryptocurrencies, um, but I don't get involved with providing advice on investments. Yeah. Okay, fascinating stuff. Now, you've only just recently joined your current um, practice, Reed Smith. We've obviously just come off the back of one of the most, um, how do we say, you know, challenging years, certainly in, in, in my living memory. Um, what are, some of the headwinds for 2021? What are some of the good things you, you and your new firm are looking forward to? And what are some of the, the risks in terms of um, working with clients, getting on board new clients, helping struggling clients uh, navigate you know, difficult times ahead? What's on the agenda for the next you know, 10 to 12 months? Great question, Lewis, and not an easy one to answer, <laughs> but uh, I will try. So um, this time frame, of course, doesn't exist in a vacuum. And perhaps the biggest impact on over the last 12 months has been COVID-19. Um, that has had a material effect on payments technology. Um, and the primary impact has been to dramatically accelerate its adoption yes. as well as additional use cases. So that's one of the reasons why I think people are seeing a lot of activity in the fintech space. Um, law firms like Reed Smith and others bringing on more fintech lawyers because there's more interest in fintech. There was already interest before, but COVID-19 has really accelerated that. Um, and what once seemed like a, a novelty or at least a non-necessity in terms of contactless payments, for example, now is seen as a necessity and is in great demand, both first and foremost by consumers, but second by companies seeking to cater to those consumers. Yep. So that I, I see that driving a lot of activity ahead. Um, a lot of companies were blindsided, if you will, by um, the, the strong interest in financial technologies and broader e-commerce. Um, and many of them had to play catch up and, and we help those clients. Um, but being able to accept uh, contactless payment in, in a friction-free way, ideally, um, those are table stakes now. Yeah. Uh, and companies need to differentiate themselves and figure out how they can leverage payment technologies to do things like attract new customers, retain the ones they have, save on transaction costs, potentially you know, harvest and utilize in an appropriate way customer data um, or have it. And all of that can interface with things like um, connected devices, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, and, and other high-tech solutions that are out there 
um, that can help companies to have a competitive advantage over others um, and to, to grow revenue. So we're working with companies to develop those types of solutions. Uh, and we're also seeing at the same time, a lot of interest, and we talked about it a few moments ago, in other more established traditional brick and mortar companies, whether they be financial institutions or perhaps even manufacturers or retailers, mm -hmm. looking to acquire companies that are developing those types of solutions. So all of that is making for a very busy mix of activity in the fintech space. And I, and I see that continuing and perhaps even accelerating further in 2021. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I think the world of fintech payments, e-commerce, it's, it's jumped forward, you know, four or five years in the last 12 months, as far as there have been you know, economic winners following um, the COVID crisis. Um, this nexus of fintech payments, e-commerce is, is definitely one of them. So I think there'll be a heck of a lot of work here, especially as older fashioned retail realizes it has to become fully online savvy. I see a lot of old traditional bricks and brick and mortar retail companies in the UK and the Netherlands, either they're putting everything into catching up and giving a, a top quality online experience, you know, with buy now, pay later functions, you know, last mile delivery capacity and all of it, or they're, they're selling for scrap and larger online companies are, are buying them up. Companies that have been around for 100 years being bought up by some web shop that's been around for less than 10 years. Um, so there's lots of, um, lots of things to, to look forward to in this space. Um, anything you'd like to um, press on before we, uh, before we wrap it up, Stephen? Um, Lewis, this has been a fascinating discussion and, and we've covered a lot of topics here and I really appreciate the great questions. Um, I just really hope that companies will continue to embrace uh, payments technology. There are so many reasons why they, and I think society as a whole, will be better off leveraging pay tech to the fullest extent possible, uh, including embracing centralized digital currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies that are based on certain company platforms, um, and otherwise trying to make uh, payments as frictionless and secure as possible while keeping privacy squarely in mind. Wonderful. Stephen, I've thrown a lot of curveballs at you this afternoon. Thank you for being a good sport and answering all sorts of questions. This is uh, Stephen Ashatino. He is partner in the global fintech practice at Reed Smith Global uh, Law Firm. Stephen, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Lewis. I really appreciate the opportunity and I've enjoyed speaking with you. You too, sir. Bye-bye for now. Take care. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner, Free a Girl, who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom, and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.
Thank you.